Hello and welcome to The Scoop, a provincial newscast and podcast with stories from LJI journalists around British Columbia. Each week, reporters from Revelstoke, Cortez Island, Kootenai, Terrace, Prince George and Smithers will share the news affecting their place in BC. I'm your host and producer, Pamela Hassan from CSEK News and Smithers. The Scoop was made possible by the Community Radio Fund of Canada and the Local Journalism Initiative Program, or LJI. Follow The Scoop on CICK Smithers Community Radio, 93.9 FM, every Thursday and Saturday at noon, online at smithersradio.com, and of course, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Dan Messick from CICK News and Smithers, and you're listening to The Scoop in Prince George, Revelstoke, Kootenai, Smithers, Terrace, and Cortez Island. Today on the program, snow and cold has returned to Prince George in time for the Paranordic competition. Ian Gregg from CFUR in Prince George dives into the 2024 Parabiathlon World Championships and the Paranordic World Cup, which will be hosted by the Caledonia Nordic Ski Club later in March. Lonnie Taylor at CKTZ on Cortez Island takes a look at how local residents are challenging BC's 2023 property assessments, which some say are completely unreasonable. And Sabrina Spencer at CFNR in Terrace tells us about how a local bead artist, Carmen Dennis from Dees Lake, attended an Ice Cube concert in Abbotsford on February 20th and has since gained recognition for her beaded medallion featuring the artist's image, which Ice Cube wore while performing. And finally, I speak with the mayors of Prince Rupert, Terrace and Smithers about the recent announcement that the provincial government will be committing $250 million to the Northwest BC Resource Benefit Alliance for local infrastructure needs. Stay with us. This is Ian Gregg reporting for CIFA Radio's Due North on 88.7 FM. This initiative is made possible by the Community Radio Fund of Canada through the Local Journalism Initiatives Program. Find our news stories online at frequencynews.ca or cfur.ca. Tuesday, March 5th, kicks off the 2024 Parabiathlon World Cup Championship with an opening ceremony at the Prince George Conference and Civic Center, 6.30 p.m., with fireworks to follow. That morning, biathlon sprint training begins, and biathlon events carry on through the rest of the week until Tuesday, March 12th, where the Paranordic World Cup Finals run through to Sunday, March 17th. Paranordic skiing, of course, includes both cross-country skiing and biathlon for athletes of all ages who have a physical impairment. The venue for these competitions is the Caledonia Nordic Ski Club, from which free park and ride transportation is available between the Prince George Conference Center and the Nordic Center daily from March 5th to 17th. Chatting with us over the phone today about this world-class athletic competition is Kevin Pedersen. Kevin, it isn't every day we get to host a world-class competition. Tell me, are you getting excited? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's been a, it's been a kind of a, a roller coaster winter. So, uh, but we're certainly delighted. Now, in the past few weeks, we've been able to uh, to get, to make the snow, and we were able to get snow. <clears throat> and so the snow conditions are looking really good. And um, yeah, everything's coming together very nicely. The venue is is all set up. The buildings are there. The big event tents are there for the uh, to feed the athletes and the volunteers. And uh, yeah, everything's coming together. We uh, we should be seeing uh, Korea actually arrive today. 
and uh, Great Britain uh, tomorrow, I believe, and then uh, most of the other teams will be arriving on the weekend. Yeah, speaking of the athletes, what kind of journey have they undertaken to arrive at this moment? Many of the athletes competed here in 2019 so um, and, and have competed a long time before then. So a lot of athletes are veterans, um, but there's also some pretty new athletes. So it's a, good, it's a good diversity, but they would have done some World Cup races here this, this year to qualify for World Championships and the World Cup Finals. And um, it's it's been a it's you know it's been a trickier year uh, winter not only here but in Europe as well where a lot of the um, a lot of the uh, races are the World Cup races are that they'd be uh, skiing but you know we're just so delighted that uh, that uh, we're getting all the teams arriving and um, yeah it, it's uh, we're keeping our fingers crossed that we'll have nice conditions here um, I think everybody really enjoyed Prince George last time and I think that's why you know five years uh, has gone by but we're able to host it again so yeah it's a real delight it is a massive relief that uh, the temperatures have plummeted and snow has fallen out of the sky uh, this event really really needs that obviously and within the span of, of just a few weeks we saw a regional competition the 2024 bc winter games over quindell Latako had a lot of issues with the weather but it looks like fingers crossed, that isn't going to be part of the challenge. Where a lot of these athletes are, are coming from in places like Europe, weather is a challenge, though. And I'm curious, are you aware of how unique it is for these athletes to be able to compete on real snow? Where they've competed this this winter, you know, like in in Europe, like in the higher elevations, like in the Alps and stuff like that, they, they have snow. It's just kind of in the lower elevations where there may be marginal conditions and so yeah they've been able to to compete and and train uh, on largely on snow they'll go to where the snow is so yeah that's that's pretty common for teams to basically seek out the snow if they if it's not where they would normally train so but we do have like uh, like i said team korea is coming here a week uh, in advance of the uh, of, of the start so so they'll get acclimatized but also have a good opportunity to get get training uh here on the on the snow um yeah i mean we've we um you know we've been really fortunate uh since 2019 we've expanded our snowmaking system to cover all of these competition trails for for the 2024 uh, world championship and world cup finals and so but we do need this the cold temperatures as well so this winter i mean normally we would be making snow in december but december didn't afford us cold temperatures so it wasn't until the uh kind of the second week of january i think we were able to actually make snow um in in a real kind of concerted effort and then we had another cold snap in february and then now so we've been making snow on these trails so there's there's probably about i was skiing them on the weekend and there's probably about 45 to 60 centimeters of snow on the trail so we're in good shape the man-made snow is very resilient so even if we do get warm temperatures or rain um or things like that like it'll stand up that that the snow that we have on these trails will be here probably till mid mid april if if uh if, if um you know it's it's really really resilient snow so if we didn't have the snow making i i don't know if we'd be looking at hosting the the uh, the championships here so it's a it was a really good investment that we were able to make over the past number of years to to not only get the snowmaking but to expand it certainly and you really had to hit that snowmaking hard and fast to to get it ready for for the event what other kinds of unique challenges have you had to face down in preparation or what are you looking at right now I think some of the things are just around around logistics, um, you know, with bringing in this many teams from all around, 
we've been working very closely with the airport. You know, there, there's a lot of gear that these teams bring with them, as well as the accessibility aids, like whether it's wheelchairs or things like that. So just making sure that that we were well planned and that everybody's everybody's kind of working together collaboratively on that side to welcome the athletes with a with a great experience and then to be able to make sure that we can get them get them in, into their kind of accommodations and have great ground transportation as well and you know one of the uh, key things that we recognize and this is right from 2019 is how lucky we are to have you know such a nice hub down down at the Civic Center with the hotels nearby that we have the athletes staying at the two Jason hotels and and they can get to the hotels without having to arrange transportation so they can get there on their own steam so to speak and also you know being right in the downtown core then they can access all the services and shops and restaurants and things like that downtown as well so we have a really nice kind of situation here, like in, in our community where, where we have that. And then the Nordic Center only being like 10 kilometers away, that's great as well. Like, I mean, when we went to one of the observational events in Germany, they had to bring in athletes from as far as 30 kilometers from the different hotels and things like that. So it's learning and recognizing the the real positive aspects we have in our community and, and how that works well for events like this is was really important. It was a, a big challenge to undertake the redevelopment of the downtown core, and it's great to hear that organizations and competitions such as the one you're involved in can uh, really take advantage. Mm-hmm. The challenges creating the adaptations that the Nordic Center has, has undertaken, what, what sorts of things have been done to the Nordic Center to be able to facilitate this competition? Because we hosted it in 2019, a lot of the big changes around accessibility uh, we did in 2019 so that was um, that was things like the the ramping, the hardscaping of the landscaping to make sure that you know we could have be wheelchair accessible. Um, things like automated door openers and um, and uh, and also uh, there's these things called Moby mats that are put across the snow that uh, so wheelchairs can uh, can have access across the snow. Um, and then when we have the when we bring in the portable buildings, making sure there's the ramping, making and everything for accessibility. So yes, it was really great to have hosted this in 2019, and a lot of that learning went into uh, 2024. So we didn't have to do so much adaptation for 2024, but um, but yeah, so that's that's been that's been kind of nice to have those legacies. What other aspects of accessibility are, are planned for the future development of the center? It's one of those things where I think you can always do more, and I think the key. For for us is to make sure that we're we're continually seeing how we can kind of create universal accessibility. You know, so it's not just for for people with disabilities, but things around that that benefit people with disabilities also benefit you know uh, parents with kids that are either in strollers or things like that, or ones that are kind of at the opposite age spectrum, so that um, you know that it's, it's easier to get around. So that's the way you know we we learned certainly that looking through that lens of accessibility. We will be having paved trails here this summer, and it'll start off with competition trails, but we do look at bringing that towards more recreational trails that will create better accessibility at our, at our facility as well. This is Ian Gregg reporting for CIFA Radio's Due North on 88.7 FM. This initiative is made possible by the Community Radio Fund of Canada through the Local Journalism Initiatives Program. Find our news stories online at frequencynews.ca or cfur.ca. This is a CKTED News Update. I'm Lonnie Taylor. BC Assessment is an independent entity that 
undertakes the task of assessing the market value of properties all over BC. Property assessments impact homeowners when the assessments are increased more than the average increase for the area. Maurice Primo, Deputy Assessor for BC Assessment, explains that if your property taxes increase at the same average rate that the rest of your region does, and then there's no changes to the overall tax rate in your region, then you will not see a change in your taxes, even if you see an increase in your assessment. If your assessment is increased more than the average in your region, then you are likely to see an increase in your taxes. Deputy Assessor Primo did acknowledge that the North Island region had seen more than a 5% increase on average, though Cortez Island is not specifically reported as a specific region within the North Island, there are rural villages within the Strathcona Regional District that are reported. The village of Zabalis saw a 29% increase in their property assessments for 2023, as did Tassa see an increase of 10%. Contrastly, the village of Sayward, also in the Strathcona Regional District, saw a 10% decrease. The city of Campbell River saw no increase or decrease in their property assessment overall, and our neighboring region of the Comox Valley saw of a decrease of 4% in the city of Courtney and the town of Comox, as well as a decrease of 7% in the village of Cumberland. BC Assessment offers the opportunity for homeowners to appeal the process if they think the assessment is incomplete or incorrect. I sat down with a local resident on Cortez Island that is going through that appeals process now, Brian Scott. Tell me a little bit about your experience as a homeowner on Cortez with this assessment process. I've been a resident here for a little over five years. In, in fact, two years ago, when I got the notification of the valuation of the property, I believed it to be too high, appealed it, was turned down at the appeal board level, and then took it to the next level. The first level is free. The next level, you pay $30, and it's some arbitration board. And I made my case, and they reduced my taxes. Valuation, rather. Not the taxes, but the valuation of the property to a level that I thought was fair. But this year, when I looked at my assessment, I realized that the land value had been increased by 46%. The building value had only been nominally increased. I think it was 2 or 3%. And I thought, seems a pretty significant jump. You know, I'd had experience looking at the BC assessment site, so I knew I could go onto a map and look at all the properties and their assessed values were. This year previous years, etc. And a pattern emerged. So all of my neighbors in the neighborhood here who aren't oceanfront had their values go up by almost exactly 46% for the land component across the board. No matter how big or how small the property was, all the oceanfront properties on Potlatch went down by about 3% for the land component. And I thought, but didn't really make a lot of sense to me. I've spoken to one person at BC Assessments who said that the assessments are based on sales and that there's a list of sales that are the comparable sales that are used to assess my property. A number of them are 
much larger properties, 10 acres. And where I come from, Edmonton originally, land value is based on capacity for economic revenue. So if I've got two acres, the current zoning is that for properties like myself to build a one principal residence and one auxiliary building. But if I have 10 acres, I could actually build more. In fact, for home occupation use, which it's commercial use, if I have 10 acres, I could actually build three additional buildings up to a total of 5,000 square feet. So there's a potential revenue for people who have got 10 acres. And of course, it's got to be compliant with the zoning that I'm not sure is getting factored in when we get this across the board sort of increase. So you are going through the process now then for the second time. Since you've been a homeowner in Cortez, you're going through the process, which the deadline to initiate that process was the end of January. That's right. And so now you're putting your case together. So you've been through this before, and it sounds like you're getting some answers from some people, but what are some of the questions you have not gotten answers to? What I'd really like would be for BC assessments provide more detail in how they arrive at an assessed value. The site is relatively easy to navigate, but a little spare on information. And they make a reference to the fact that they're members of an international assessing organization that's located with a head office down in the United States. But when I went to that site, and even BC Assessment site, they list all of the factors that could be taken into account when a property is valued, but they don't tell you on your specific property how they arrived at that number. So it makes it somewhat challenging for anybody to appeal. The fact that there's an opportunity to appeal, I think is great. It's not that difficult to register your intent to appeal, fill in the blanks, your name, phone number, address, etc. And in fact, by the 31st, all we had to do was submit an intent to appeal, but not any of the backup reasons or arguments, etc. So that's why I'm still in the process of putting that together. But it isn't easy to figure out why my land value and most of my neighbors went up by 46%. I'm not even sure at this point if I've got enough of an argument to be able to go through this process successfully. The first time when I appealed it, and I wasn't successful at the board level, and it was just like the assessor made their case, the board listened to it and said, we think the case is good. And I was like, the evidence wasn't addressed. All the assessor did was say, this is how I did it. And the board was like, okay, that's fine. So it was only after I took it to the arbitration board that they were able to go, okay, I guess we'll take a closer look at this. You have to be persistent if you're going to really make some headway. So right now I'm just more curious about the valuation process. And as I dig deeper into it, the more questions I've got. Thank you so much for sharing. Is there anything else that you wanted to include? I think that for any system work well, it needs a good feedback loop. And because every system can go off the rail. I think that too many homeowners roll over and don't take the time to look at it, take advantage of the tools that are being provided, take a look and see, is this fair or not? Lonnie Taylor, CKTZ News. Cortez Island.
CKTZ News is brought to you by the Local Journalism Initiative, the program funded by Heritage Canada and administered through the Community Radio Fund of Canada. In Dowaloan, I'm Sabrina Spencer with A Journey Continues, highlighting local stories that matter to you. Carmen Dennis is a bead artist from Dees Lake, B.C., who shares her experience at an Ice Cube concert where she gained recognition for a beaded medallion containing the singer's silhouette image. Dennis spoke with CFNR about her journey in learning beadwork and the importance that it has in cultural communities and the expressive nature. About a week or so ago, you actually took in an event down... Abbotsford. You were kind of all over social media. You went to an Ice Cube concert. Yes. And then what was it about this concert that kind of made you famous or what got you recognized? <laughs> well, it was not my intention, but it was a medallion that I beaded. And my daughter threw it on stage, and Ice Cube picked it up, and he wore it for his last two songs. Obviously, you do beadwork. How long did it take you to do this medallion? Well, I started drawing everything out, and I prepped it on Monday. But the first few lines that I did, and I was using a different technique than the one that was in my reel. So the first time I was going straight up and down, but the beads weren't lining up properly the way I wanted them to. So I um, took it all apart. And then Tuesday is when I started beating it in, um, in a circle. And those beads lined up a lot better than the first attempt. So how long have you been doing beadwork? Since 2010. So back in high school, I learned how to do loom work. And I did it for a while after high school, but not very much. And it wasn't until 2010 when um, my coworker and my friend, Penny Louie, she's a renowned bead artist and sewer as well. She taught me pretty much everything that I know now. Okay, so that was actually one of my questions. You use the term bead artist. So is that what you kind of refer to yourself as? I think so, because before beading, I used to do like acrylic painting. I've done pencil shading. I like doing a lot of crafty things. One of the things that I was kind of wondering when, you know, thinking about that and everything is, you know, are people who do beadwork, like, are they considered artists or are they considered jewelry makers? But honestly, I do definitely like the term bead artist the best because it is definitely an art form. It is. It really is. I think anybody who does like, you know, embroidery, sewing, beading, definitely artists. I mean, because you've got to think about like colors, lines, like these things take a lot of time and a lot of thought, a lot of patience goes into work like this. I would definitely call anybody who's a crafter an artist. So for yourself, when you started doing your beadwork, I mean, you do like a, a lot of cultural, that type of thing? Not right away. When I first started out, I was learning how to make slippers and mitts. I uh, made a vest for my partner and a shawl for my daughter when, when I just had my oldest daughter with me. My second, my youngest daughter came along and she has like slippers. And so they have a few things for me. I've been this over the years. Me and my coworker have done um, like small little packages that we've given out in our community. We do workshops once in a while and we do collaborations together. 
What's the importance of beadwork in cultural communities? I can't speak for everybody, but like for me, I always thought that beading is medicine. Like it's really helped me through like a lot of the good, a lot of the bad. I notice now too that a lot of shapes and like designs are starting to be reused again that were on like our artifacts that were in museums and that. All of those are coming back and I, I just love seeing like the colors and like colors that you think would not match. Like, looking at them now, it's it's beautiful. So kind of like um, maybe revitalization. This story is brought to you in partnership with the Local Journalism Initiative of Canada. You can see the full story at FrequencyNews.ca. Today on CSK News. After nearly a decade of negotiation and advocacy for Northwest BC communities and regional districts, the Northwest BC Resource Benefit Alliance has secured $250 million over the next five years for infrastructure needs for more than 21 communities in BC's north. The funding comes as the provincial government introduced their final budget last week ahead of the 2024 elections this fall, and these funds are just a fraction of what resource projects have generated in Northwest BC over the past decades. However, according to the Alliance, these funds will go a long way to help update and build new critical infrastructure throughout Northwest BC communities and is just the beginning. Today, we'll check in with the three co-chairs of the Alliance, Mayor Pond of Prince Rupert, Mayor Buitage of Terrace, and Mayor Attrell of Smithers, all who were present in Victoria at the funding announcement and whose communities have been waiting a long time to see this funding come through. Stay with us. I'm Herb Pond, and I'm the Mayor of Prince Rupert. Great, Herb. Thanks so much for being with us again here on CICK News. Um, of course, a, a pretty amazing announcement came last week. $250 million over the next five years to the Northwest BC Resource Benefit Alliance. This is a, a project that has been 10 years in the making, and this is the first real substantial financial commitment from the provincial government. Maybe walk me through kind of your visit with the other uh, mayors from the region down to Victoria last week, and, and what did you hear? Yeah, so so as you know, there are three of us that are the co-chairs for the much larger organization. We each have been appointed by the our uh, respective regional district to to carry this ball forward, um, and and we knew we'd had meetings over the last year and a half uh of course people have been as you said working on this for 10 years i i happen to have the pleasure of being one of the people that got to carry the ball over the, the line but uh but there's been a ton of work done on this over years um and and we had we had lots of signs and signals that we were getting close uh and at the same time there's always a debate within government uh as there should be uh as to each funding request and how it gets handled and we wanted to make sure that people didn't forget us or forget the northwest and so probably a month ago we let the premier and others know that we would be coming down to be there for the throne speech excuse me <clears throat> to be there for the throne speech and and then also for budget day and, and what we were telling them was we wanted to be there to celebrate the good news because we we're confident that it would be including this uh, in this upcoming budget. And, and so that's why we were there. We had some meetings uh, and, and uh, 
with, and, and then there were some follow-up meetings with, with staff from our staff. So, um, just, just a really good productive push to get it over the finish line. I can't say enough about the efforts from, uh, from my MLA, Jen Rice, but also, also, uh, all, all three of the MLAs supported it, but, but, uh, you know, Nathan Cullen was, was instrumental as well. Um, so, yeah, big, big, big day. Sean Buitash, I am the mayor of the city of Terrace. Great, Sean. Thanks so much for being with us here on CICK News again. Uh, of course, a big announcement last week, 250 mil for the Re- Northwest Resource Benefit Alliance. Uh, this is a pretty big deal. Uh, from your perspective, uh, from the mayor of Terrace, as the mayor of Terrace, what does this mean for your community? Well, this is a big deal for all the communities in the in the northwest, not just Terrace. We have we have been all of us have been struggling with large infrastructure deficits, with no way to pay it pay for it, mainly because a good chunk of industry is outside of our communities, and um, and so we have no ability to tax them. So now with this this deal in place, this will give us money to start fixing that 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 shortfall of infrastructure deficit that we have. You know, you look at it as City of Terrace, and I, you know, we haven't figured out the funding model yet, but, you know, I, on on average, I'm paving uh, one major road project a year, and this could be mean I could be doing five or six. Uh, my name is Gladys Attrell. I am the mayor of Smithers. Great, Gladys. Thanks so much for being with us here on CACK again. Uh, of course, uh, as mentioned before, $250 million has now been committed by the provincial government to the Northwest Resource Benefit Alliance, a deal that's been in the making for 10 years. And finally, it's come to fruition. We're going to see about 50 mil over the next uh, a year, over the next five years. What does this mean for Northwest BC and for Smithers? Well, I mean, first of all, it's a good announcement. It means that the work gone into it has borne fruit, and a lot of people have worked very hard on the RBA for a long time. It means that the provincial government, um, Premier Eby's government, recognizes that there are impacts that are felt in communities by the industrial development in a region. Uh, So this actually acknowledges that and provide some funding for the communities affected to be able to deal with the infrastructure needs, um, you know, the things that are associated with having a lot of work in our region. You've been listening to CICK News. If you have any hot tips or news stories you think we should cover, contact us at CICKNews at smithersradio.com or follow us on Facebook at CICK News. CSK News is made possible by the Government of Canada and the Community Radio Fund of Canada, the only organization mandated to financially supporting campus and community radio stations across Canada. You can also catch our fresh shows each week at theskina.com or subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks to our producer Pam Hassan and all of our roving reporters, I'm Dan Messick. Thanks for listening.